Welcome to the Roots Report podcast, presented by Motif Magazine, sponsored by The Parlor, R1 Entertainment, and the Trinity Brewhouse Beer Garden. Okie dokie, folks. Welcome to the maiden voyage of the Roots Report podcast from Motif Magazine. My name is John Fusick, and I've been writing the Roots Report for Motif Magazine for the past 18 years. I hope to migrate many of my performer interviews to this platform so you can better share in the experience of my conversations with artists. You can always read my columns in print or at MotifRI.com. Today in the Roots Report podcast, we have John Hall from the band Orleans. They had hits with songs such as Dance With Me, Love Takes Time, Still the One, and Let There Be Music. They'll be at the Stadium Theater in Woonsocket on March 25th. Hall also had solo hits. One of them is my favorite. It's called Crazy. And he was also one of the founders of Musicians United for Safe Energy and wrote the anthem Power. On top of all this, he was a member of the United States House of Representatives as a congressman from New York. John, how are you? I'm good, thanks, John. Thanks for asking me back on your on your cast. Well, that's great. I'm glad to talk to you again. I, I like talking with you. I, I like what you do and your music and your politics. And Thanks much. So you you moved to Nashville. I did. And you lived up in northern New York for quite a long time. Well, I lived in the Hudson Valley of New York. Most, I was born in Elmira, New York, in the southern tier. And lived in the Hudson Valley, Woodstock or Saugerties or Dutchess County, of, you know, east of Poughkeepsie, on the other side of the Hudson River for most of my adult life. Now that, uh, a few times, uh, you know, moved to Nashville and back a few times and spent a lot of time in L.A. And, of course, spent a lot of time on the road. But uh, we made records in L.A. and San Francisco where we would just be ensconced in a hotel for six months at a time and uh, recording. But anyway, and now that recording can a lot of it be done at home, it's easier to uh, to make a record from wherever you are. And, and we've been doing that a lot. And uh, well, Orleans was formed in northern New York, correct? We were formed in Woodstock, yeah. And when it was with Trio with me and Larry Hoppin and Wells Kelly rehearsed in uh, Johanna's in my basement in Saugerties. And um, Lance Hoppin uh, joined us on bass nine months later. And that's the quartet that recorded uh, Let There Be Music and Dance With Me and, you know, that whole album. And, and two before it, actually. And then we added Jerry Murata for our fourth album that had uh, was Waking and Dreaming as the title, had Still the One on it, and Spring Fever and various other songs. So, uh, yeah, that's Woodstock was really the, the home base for the band uh, for years. Now, you wrote those uh, those hit songs with Johanna, right? That's correct. And you, do you do any writing with her still? Yeah, actually, my new solo record, uh, Reclaiming My Time, has uh, a song called Now More Than Ever that we wrote last year. And um, had a couple other songs that uh, she and I wrote with our friend Jonelle Moss, her extraordinary singer and writer from Nashville. I know that fo- I know that you've told me the story before, but maybe uh, other folks who don't, who haven't heard it, is the story of you and Janis Joplin. <laughs> People like to hear yeah. stuff like that. I'd love for you, our listeners, well, to hear was, that story. Right. Uh, so Johanna was a journalist for the Village Voice in New York City, and uh, uh, she wrote a good review of Janis's uh, Cosmic Blues album, which that was a record she made after leaving Big Brother and the Holding Company. A lot of the the rock critics were critical of her for abandoning her friends the guys in the commune from san francisco and, and uh she was looking for something musically a little bit more sophisticated and um r&b oriented and uh, you know had horns on the record and a more polished uh, band and 
and so on. So uh, Johanna wrote a good review of that, and Janice was so thrilled to see it that she asked if Johanna would like to do an interview with her. And of course, Johanna and I were huge fans of Janice's, and the request came through uh, Albert Grossman, uh, Janice's manager's publicist. Johanna got on the bus, went across town from the Lower East Side to the west side of Greenwich Village and met Janice at a Greek restaurant. And I was at home probably playing guitar or something. And, you know, an hour or two later, I guess it was probably more like an hour and a half, two hours later, the door opens and in comes Johanna, followed by Janice. You know, it's not every day that you see Janice Chaplin walk into your kitchen. No. <laughs> with, the, with the door opened. It was, a, it was an old-fashioned... Uh, four-floor walk-up uh, in a Ukrainian neighborhood at the time uh, where there was a claw-footed uh, bathtub in the kitchen, a little water closet of a toilet. And, and the first thing I thought was, I wish I'd have changed the cat box. <laughs> but, but anyway, so we just, uh, we sat around, it was right before Christmas, so we sat around and sang and played blues versions of Chris, Christmas carols. And we're just fooling around. Janice drank the cooking sherry, which was the only alcohol we had in the house. And um, and I played her a couple songs I had written lyrics and music to. And she said, uh, I like the music, but it sounds like a young man, you know, like a young guy talking. And I said, well, I am a young guy. So, And she turns to Joanna and says, you're a woman. You're a writer. Why don't you two write me something a woman would want to sing? And so it was like a command performance. Uh, Joanna wrote the lyric out and handed it to me and I wrote the music and uh, we wound up playing it for Janice and uh, she recorded it. From the time she learned it, she did it at every show until she died. She played it on Dick Cabot. She played it on that train ride across Canada with the band and Joni Mitchell and Dylan and all those folks. And so it was really uh, like being struck by lightning in a way or, uh, or just an opportunity that doesn't come very often in anybody's life. But that was really how we got to be songwriters. And that song made enough money for us that we could um, that we could take time to learn how to write songs that good on purpose. We had to write some lousy songs before we got back to writing good ones. So, uh, What was the name of that song again? Half Moon. Half Moon. I knew it was something moon. <laughs> yeah, it's Half Moon. It was the B-side of me and Bobby McGee. It was on Janice's Pearl album, which, of course, you know, came out posthumously. But she was, they were mixing the record, and she passed away before it could come out. But what happens in those circumstances, fortunately or not, is that, you know, somebody dies and their record comes out. It goes straight to number one. You know, right. If it's anybody as popular as, as she was. So Now, then New, then Orleans came after this? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Orleans was a couple of years later. Um, we did our first show as Orleans in uh, January of 1972. So this is our 50th anniversary. Um, oh, well, this is actually the 50th anniversary. This isn't one of the postponed 50th anniversaries that I've been talking no, to a no, lot of people about. No, no, this is actually, about. yeah, it was, it was uh, January, late January of 1972, we did a show as Orleans, the first one where we used that name in upstate New York with just me and Wells and Larry. And uh promoter wanted us back. It was a college, I think it was Oswego State University show, and, and they wanted us back, but we had to use the same name or people wouldn't know to come see us. Right. <laughs> and until then, we'd been trying a different name every week. But anyway, that one stuck. Now, you you took that name because you were trying to create a, a New Orleans sound at that time, right? Well, yes, we were listening to a lot of New Orleans music, uh, along with, you know, American R&B and reggae and different different stylings. But we were playing Alan St. Meters, Neville Brothers covers and and writing our own stuff that was sort of headed in that direction. After you after you became Marlene's and got record deals, then you toured quite a bit and were quite busy for years. Well, yeah, the first two albums, uh, Orleans and Orleans 2, 
nice creative name. <laughs> were uh, they were sort of cult favorites, and we, you know, they were pretty successful in the Northeast and in uh, Denmark and in Holland. But the second album, which actually had "Dance with Me" and "Let There Be Music" on it, ABC Records, which was our label at the time, didn't hear a hit, and they uh, dropped us. They put those records out only in Europe, but dropped us in the States, and uh, we managed to get a deal with Asylum Records, David Geffen's label at the time, and Chuck Plotkin, who was his head of A&R, signed us and produced the next two records for us. Uh, so he got the re-recording rights to uh, just uh, dance with me and uh, let there be music, and we recut them with him, and those are the hit versions. Was that on Waking Up and Dreaming? I can't remember what was on. Waking and Dreaming, still the one was on Waking okay. and Dreaming, and, and uh, Let There Be Music and uh, Dance With Me were on the Let There Be Music album. We toured when Dance With Me was out. We toured with Melissa Manchester, which was a little bit of a mismatch maybe because uh, she had that beautiful ballad, Midnight Blue, out. And, right. You know, lovely song. but And we had Dance With Me, and people kind of expected that soft rock thing when we were doing a lot of R&B and blues and you know songs like two-faced world that were kind of you know out of the r&b vein that we've been working in the clubs in the northeast and uh, we were known more as a club band and a dance band up until then and a jam band and all of a sudden we were known to the rest of the country or the rest of the world as as a pop record group and so there was a little bit of uh, adjustment on the audience's part and on our part you stayed with orleans for a few years and then Right around the turn of the decade, you left the band and went solo. It was actually earlier than that. I went solo in 1978, put out a solo record, just uh, eponymous John Hall record. And then um, in 79, I put out my power album and also got involved with uh, the No Nukes concerts, uh, which I was one of the organizers of. Let's talk about and, that a little bit. Okay. Uh, I had gotten involved in already in various environmental and other you know, causes that I felt strongly about. I remember doing a fundraiser for the victims of the famine, famine in Biafra back when I was in living in the village. And, you know, from then, that's the first one that I can remember that was really, you know, a benefit concert that I, that one had Jimi Hendrix and Joan Baez and various other performers. And, um, but anyway, so I, uh, I got involved locally with uh, trying to stop a nuclear plant from, from going in on the Hudson River, just six miles north of our home in Saugerties, which is just east of Woodstock. And, um, you know, went to the hearings of the Public Service Commission and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and read as much as I could about the good and the bad about that particular plant and the technology in general. And uh, wound up doing fundraisers for a group called Mid-Hudson Nuclear Opponents. And then uh, I did a, a fundraiser with Bonnie Raid and Jackson Brown and James Taylor and Carly Simon. And I think Jesse Cohen Young and there's a bunch of wonderful folks. I think it was at the Palladium in New York for the Karen Silkwood okay. Foundation. And uh, after that show, which was sold out and raised a lot of money for them, um, we were saying, what now? And uh, I said, well, why don't we get everybody we know and go to the Madison Square Garden? So that's what happened. We started out with one show at the Garden. Each person of that core group was, uh, was given different people to call or volunteered to call others, other artists. And we wound up with uh, with the Doobie Brothers and Crosby, Stills and Nash and, and um, Chaka Khan, Peter Tosh, uh, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Uh, various, you know, incredible lineup of Bruce Springsteen, you know, maybe most importantly in terms of selling tickets, 
And uh, what started out as one night at the garden turned into five and a rally at Battery Park with a quarter of a million people. And, and um, it also became a Warner, Brothers, a Warner Brothers movie and triple album. And uh, so was that was actually quite big at the time. It was quite big at the time. Because I remember yeah. hearing it and seeing the concert and, you know, seeing parts of it and hearing the songs on the radio quite a bit. That was a right. that was quite a big deal for... Right. Well, and, you know, I'm really proud of the fact that we, in 1979, spent a lot of that time talking about renewable energy. Um, the song Power, which kind of was we did it there with the Doobies and James Taylor and Michael McDonald sharing the vocal lead vocals with me, that the song starts out, just give me the warm power of the sun. Right. You know, steady flow of the waterfall, the restless power of the wind, et cetera. It's just it's a song that talks more about renewables than it does about um, uh, nuclear power. Right. And uh, so, and we raised over a million dollars that was given away to safe energy um, projects around the country and uh, small grants, I think, that averaged a thousand bucks or a couple thousand bucks. And Bonnie Raitt and I were the only musicians who served on the foundation board that gave the big money away through grants and we had read hundreds of grant applications and so on. So it's, it was work, but it was uh, it was good work. And as my father, the engineer, said, uh, work is anything that won't do itself. <laughs> So, so how do you, I mean, I'm sure you have uh, opinions about what's going on in today's energy markets, correct? I do, yeah. You, you can share them. I'd, I'd like to hear them. <laughs> well, well, there's an effort right now, mainly from inside the nuclear industry, to greenwash that technology and say that it's necessary to prevent the worst case climate change, um, which is misguided. I think it's neglects to consider the, the time it takes to develop these uh, plants, to site them. And uh, even with the small modular nuclear reactors, of which there's no working prototype yet, it's not like this is a technology you can roll out right away. It's like to plow billions of dollars into that when you could be putting the same thing into the lowest hanging fruit, which was which is conservation, retrofitting, you know, city, inner city or um, old apartment buildings uh, with insulation and storm windows, changing incandescent light bulbs to LED bulbs, uh, giving electric cars to anybody who can't afford to, to buy one, kind of like the cash for clunkers program that went in place to get gas filters off the road because we were trying to be independent of Middle East oil. Uh, you know, the same thing. Same logic would go here. And and especially, you know, to build out uh, more solar and wind and tidal power and uh, wave power and geothermal and all the alternatives that are free are here now. The technology is known. And, uh, you know, we can start deploying these things now as opposed to waiting for decades for, well, the most recent thing that I think was a hoot was an article I saw a couple of days ago about a fusion project in England where they managed to keep a a nuclear fusion uh, reaction going on for I think it was five seconds. Yeah, I, I read that. I read that article. <laughs> right, and it's and it's it's a loser. They had to put more energy in. Right. To build this magnetic bottle, they call it a very strong magnetic field that holds. See that the problem with the temperatures of nuclear fusion is like what powers the sun. It's going on inside the sun. It'll come melt or vaporize any metal known to man. We can't build something physical to hold it. So they have to make this magnetic bottle to hold it, and that takes an enormous amount of power. So it uses more power than it actually generates. Yeah. And there's well, maybe in three decades, you know, we'll have this together to the point where we can commercialize it. Well, we don't have three decades. No, no, we you don't. Know, we we have maybe a decade to turn our carbon emissions around and start, you know, 
really cutting them back so that we can keep the pet temperature from rising too much, keep the sea level rise from going up more than it's already going to go. And that's why we should, you know, in my opinion, that's why we should be putting money into proven technologies that are available now. And, and that would be the solar and the wind and geothermal and tidal and so on. I don't know why people demonize that so much. It's, it's, it's probably the most obvious and solution to problems. And it, it, it's already proven that it can work. It's just that if they put all the, the energy and uh, thought behind the solar and wind that they put into the other things, all the drilling and the nuclear, and if they put all everything that they went behind that into solar and wind, we would be energy efficient and energy or independent. If we, if we had started doing that in 1979, right, <laughs> when we had those concerts. But, uh, you know, here we are now. We have to decide how best to move forward from, from today. And, um, and I think that's the way to go. And it's also, you know, everybody driving the most efficient car they can drive. That'll, that'll do what they need it to do. I mean, if you have a family, you, you need, or if you're, you know, doing work that requires you to carry a lot of gear around, then you're not going to be able to drive a little sedan. Right. But but it's trying to drive the most efficient one that'll do what you need it to do. And, um, you know, there's also just the way you drive. You can save a lot of power by not accelerating more, you know, faster than you need to and then braking harder than you need to on the other end. I think the problem a lot of it is, is that people, people have sold this whole macho lifestyle of the cars and, you know, right. the fast and the furious and muscle cars and, you know, big Hummers and F-350s and, you know, it's all this toughness that, you know, if you drive something small and energy efficient, you're a pussy. I mean, it's just, it, it, that's the way that things are sold. I mean, people are, I mean, if you see a car commercial, it's a, you know, it's, it's all rugged and rough and they're, you know, tooling around the right. desert. And it's like, nobody drives around that like that. It's just that they, they give you that, that viewpoint and it's just, it's marketing. Right. Well, you know, I was really happy on the Super Bowl to see that there were a lot of ads for electric cars, uh, for EVs. And, uh, you know, anybody that's got a, uh, a Hummer, a Hummer that's making pretty really manly uh should try drag racing with a tesla model 3 because <laughs> that get dusted i mean the acceleration coming out of these electric cars is extraordinary and um you know not that you should drive one like that because you'll get fewer miles per battery charge you know so it basically comes down to you know we have to sacrifice something well that's Everybody what people don't want to do nobody wants to sacrifice anything well you know, I'm sorry, but if you have kids or grandkids, then maybe you think about that and you'd be willing to sacrifice. I don't want my granddaughter to be living in a world where the heat that's absorbed by the ocean causes the food chain to crash, which, by the way, it's on the verge of doing where, you know, shellfish can't make or keep their shells because there's so much carbolic or carbonic acid in the ocean from absorbing the carbon dioxide or monoxide that uh, the krill can't live and they're at the bottom of the food chain and all the other larger shellfish were or the small fish that are eaten by the big fish that are eaten by the really big fish you know if the bottom is pulled out from under the food chain uh it'll be bad news for everybody all around it's not just it's not just uh, the growing latitudes moving toward the poles for growing grain for instance you know if, right if the climate keeps changing the way it is already starting to do, you know, we're going to be buying grain from Canada if they can grow enough of it. Right, right. You know, and instead of being a net food exporter, the United States should be a net food importer. Well, and people, that's going to change things, you know, for 
for everybody's kids and grandkids and future generations beyond that. Oh. And that's, to me, that's enough reason to be willing to sacrifice. People are short-sighted. They're foolish. They they listen to lobbyists. They listen to the wrong people. They're... Well, they're also trying to keep their head above water. Right. They're trying to, you know, work and take care of a family and put food on the table and, you know, watch some TV and, and go to sleep and get up and do it again the next day. I and mean, it's a, you know, we're, nobody's having an easy time, especially with this pandemic going on. Yeah, there's a lot of reasons and I think the, the car companies are guilty of only advertising the cars with the biggest profit margin, right. which tend to be SUVs. Right. And I, I read uh, in the last day or two a study that said that if if SUVs were a country, it would be the seventh largest polluter on, on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it's just, uh, I guess that's why maybe they're starting to make electric SUVs, but... How about selling smaller cars, which will use less electricity, too? I mean, it's, the electricity has to be generated somewhere. Right. And the more of it we use unnecessarily, the more damage to the environment there is. So right. uh, so it comes down to all of us being willing to change a little bit, you know, change maybe in terms of our diet, change in terms of the vehicles we drive or, you know, how we eat our homes or cook our food or what temperature the thermostat is set at uh, right. and you know it's all common sense stuff there's no mystery involved but uh, anyway that's my speech well you asked for it yeah no i'm glad i like to hear about it people should know that you know that's you're put your money where your mouth is kind of person too uh and you walk the walk and talk the talk so i mean you so, were i don't know if you saw the video that i just put out we just put out this uh with with dar williams yeah, Save the Monarch. Yeah. yeah, I haven't watched it yet. I've had it in my queue to watch it. I was going to put it in my column. I was going to mention it, and I just haven't found a place to put it. But we can talk about that now, actually, if you want. Okay, sure. You know, it's on my Reclaiming My Time CD. Um, I wrote the song. Dar and I sang a duet on it. It's a prayer. It's a hymn for endangered species, really. Um, and I wrote it, you know, trying to use the allegory of the royals. You know, Save, save the Monarch is not really about God Save the Queen. Right. It's the monarch butterfly. Save the king, King Condor. Watch him rise. You know, save the queen, the queen of the honeybees. Right, right. And, and these are species that are on the brink of extinction that are being pushed further that way, either through pesticides we're using or through loss of habitat and migrating pathways. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of reasons why poaching uh, for some species in, in Africa, especially um, the fires in uh well, the United States and American West, especially burning up old old growth forests, which is irreplaceable. Um, all of these things uh, should be a concern to us. And I, um, you know, I, I just was thinking about my little brother Jerry, who was a Catholic priest. I remember when he was ordained, uh, his first sermon. He talked about how in, in Genesis um, was the void, and then the earth, and the, the sky, and the oceans, and, and the land, and then the creatures that swam in the ocean crawled on the land and flew in the sky. And only after all of them were Adam and Eve, human beings, created. And and he said in his first sermon, when we dump poison into the air or into the water or onto the land, we're defiling the first physical manifestation of God. And I was sitting there in the pews going, that's my brother. Yes. <laughs> Well, it is true. I mean, if people, you know, want to look at it that way, and that's what what they can get, and it makes them makes them change. Yeah. Then that's... it's not at odds with religion at all. In fact, it should be in agreement. And um, Jerry got to watch me on stage all the time. That was one of the couple of times I got to be in the congregation or in the audience, and, and uh, with him up on stage or on the on the altar. But 
But anyway, yeah, so Dar sang on uh, Save the Monarch with me, did a great job. And how did you hook up with Dar? I've known Dar for a long time. She lived very close to me in the Hudson Valley okay, in Cold Spring, New York. And um, we did a lot of benefits together. When I ran for Congress, she uh, did a couple of fundraisers for me. And um, she's a very wonderful, generous, and talented person and a uh, great songwriter. So, um, yeah, I've known Dar for a while. And she just, I called her up and asked her to do this, and she was she was happy about it and ready to go from the first conversation. So, um, and the video was done by a guy named Rob Arthur, who has been uh, Peter Frampton's keyboard player for 20 years or more. Oh, okay. And uh, when COVID came along and Frampton and everybody else was off the road, um, Rob decided, you know, to do some uh, video work for, for Peter Frampton to go on his website and social media and edited some live footage together and so on discovered he had quite a, a talent for um video editing and and, um, and he started being asked by other people to do videos for them uh music videos he wound up doing a, a video in isolation of the doobie brothers old black water listen to the music he did one with uh, for frampton that had on the song let it rain it had uh sammy hagar michael mcdonald a bunch of the doobies nick, nick fleetwood on drums all these people from their different countries right and and states and cities and so on and it's it's extraordinary and he's done a couple for orleans and he did uh three now for me from my from my cd uh the latest one being save the Mars. so, so it's, it's worth checking out what is yeah I'm, I'm definitely going to check it out after we talk now because i like i said i've had it in my i've had it in, in a list of things to talk about in my column for a while and i just haven't been able to squeeze it in but yeah i was gonna i figured i'd squeeze it in to to coordinate with the orlean show at the uh the stadium coming up mm -hmm. so uh i have a question this is the question i ask you every time i see you play are you going to play crazy at this show i think so we, we've ah. been doing that's like one of my all-time favorite songs. Okay. The last time I saw, last two times I've saw you, you they were abbreviated concerts and they just weren't right for to play crazy. But I've always wanted to see you play that song. <laughs> oh, we'll do it. We'll do it. We've been doing that uh, every show for quite a while. Oh, great, great. Um, and uh, yeah, crazy was uh, from the John Hall band, all of the above album, album that came out in 1991, and. Our keyboard player Bob Linebox sang lead on, uh, except while well, I sang a few lines. Here right, there. right. I and love John that. Troyer I love that old video from the '80s too. I, I just, yeah. it's just the the way you trade the vocals on there, and it's just the whole attitude of the video is just, it's just yeah. that's just one of my favorite songs and videos. That was one I had there. here. <laughs> <laughs> you looked a little crazy in that video, actually, too. <laughs> well, you know, we were acting it up. You had a kind of bizarre, kind of twisted look in your eyes when you were singing. I might have been. <laughs> it was kind of funny. Yeah, I might have been twisted. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I just got to tell you this story. Bob Leinbach and I used to room together, and we didn't have enough of a budget on that tour to, um, when Crazy came out, to uh, get individual uh, single rooms. So we are double up, and Bob and I were uh, were doubled up. And our manager, uh, APOC, called and said, uh, uh, you know, the, the, there was a Maxwell House commercial back around then. It, it was uh, this couple who were in a recording studio and uh and uh the guy you know said to the to the man said to the woman um hey our record just hit the charts and she said great let's have a cup of coffee and um it was just a 30 second coffee ad on tv you know so bob and i are lying in bed in this hotel uh separate beds uh and and the phone rings and i reach over to the night table and pick it up and it's our manager and he said i just wanted you to know crazy just just hit the charts at number 41 or whatever it was. I forget the number. And I said to Bob, hey, 
crazy just hit the charts and bob without missing a beat says let's have a cup of coffee (laughs) it was you had to be there but well no it's that there was a time when i commercials last night i i this is stupid but last night i was saying something and i was doing a little bit from a monty python skit that i i've been doing since i was a in my adolescence and my girlfriend just didn't get it. I mean, she didn't do it. She didn't know what I was doing. I was just doing this little M M and it was a scene that John Cleese did. Uh, it was about a, a woman called Anne Elk, and I showed it to her last night, and it fell flat on her because she just didn't get the whole Monty Python thing. But it's yeah. you know, it's one of those things. You grow up with something, and you you do these you 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 get these mimic things and these cultural references in your head, and then you do them, and and then it skips a generation or something and you don't get it and it kind of falls flat with other people and it's just like you think it's hysterical and other people are like okay yeah and that happens to me a lot because <laughs> yeah the older you get the more your cultural references fall out of favor and i mean and the first thing to go is short-term memory right. so you got all these memories from when you were a kid right <laughs> but but i think uh, i think it's it is funny the stuff that pops in your head yeah it is it's, it's hysterical so we should probably loop back to orleans and what we're going to do you're going to be at the uh the stadium theater and uh in woodsocket and orleans looking is forward to that and yeah. uh you know we should talk about that show a little bit well we played new england a lot but not since covid uh so really excited about that i, mean, I think we played in lynn mass but this will be our return to rhode island um well we've got a new guy playing uh guitar and singing uh fly amaro who was with the band for quite a while um had a health issue that took him off the road oh that's too bad i like fly yeah fly's fabulous he's and he's, he's doing guy. better he's doing better but he's not out traveling with us yet so um so uh, Tom Lane is his replacement, and Tom's got a great voice and is a great guitar player. And, uh, you know, and it's Lance, my partner from the original quartet, and his brother, his and Larry's brother, Lane Hoppin on keyboard and, and trumpet and melodica, all instruments that Larry played, and uh, Brady Spencer on drums. So we're uh, we're doing a mixture of new songs. Actually, we've got a couple of new ones that will be maybe two songs that will be on our 50th anniversary album, which will be out later this year. And um, and um, one or maybe two songs from my record. I think we're going to do the song uh, uh, Alone Too Long, which was the first single off my record. Okay. And uh, there's a good video on that, too, if you go to johnhallmusic.com. Uh, there's three videos from, from the new record up there, including Save the Monarch. But, uh, yeah, and then we're doing, you know, obviously the hit songs that people want to hear and a smattering from each album of, uh, of album tracks that over the years people have gotten really fond of. So, you know, we try to balance it and do some of everything. Well, I mean, some of those songs, I mean, Still the One and Dance With Me, they were, they, they've been incorporated into commercials. So they've got that life that they've taken on their own lives. And you, know, right. you will always hear those songs. Yeah, thank God we, we will. I, uh I mean, they're great songs. They're so much better than, you know, I mean, they're songs that have melody and great harmonies. And I mean, that's the whole thing about, you know, your band is great harmonies and melody. And, you know, well, that's that's still what excites me. You know, good, good musicianship, uh, interesting melody and, and harmony and, and chord progressions. Right. And that's you know, why they they've used them in commercials, too, because they're popular and they're catchy and people remember them. Yeah, there was an article in, uh, I forget if it was Rolling Stone or Forbes or, you know, some magazine that I see online. Uh, the, the headline was, Is the Old Music Killing the New Music? <laughs> and did you see that? No, I didn't see uh, that. 
It was about how popular songs from the 60s, 70s, and, and early 80s are. And, you know, it's how it's making it more difficult, some people think, for uh, new artists to get their music heard. And it, it may be true. Um, and I may be speaking from self-interest being an older artist. <laughs> uh, but but I think that really what it comes down to is that a lot of people do want to hear interesting melodies and harmonies. And, you know, I first got interested in uh, in music and in playing music because I like surprises. I I liked like with the Beatles records, there was always a bridge. It seemed like in every song that was a surprise. Right. You'd hear a verse and a chorus and another verse and another chorus and the bridge would take you someplace totally different and, and then back again. And, and uh, or I really liked hearing the musicianship. Gee, I was just listening the other day to yesterday, I think it was to uh, Michael McDonald's uh, I Keep Forgetting. Right, right. And, you know, that's a song that has Jeff Porcaro from Toto playing drums on it and Lewis Johnson from the Brothers Johnson playing bass on it. Those guys are legendary musicians. And there's all the, there were all these comments on um, on the YouTube uh, version that I was listening to from people saying, "Wow, I just can't believe that on the end of the ride out on the end of that song, what Percaro's doing or what he and Lewis Johnson both are doing." I used to you know buy records and listen, listen to records to hear those things. Right. I mean, this, well, so we, used, we looked at music a whole lot different than people look at music now, anyway. Yeah, I'm just not as interested in program drums. No, I. I, it's so sterile and it's just there's no there's no feeling or warmth to it and there's no I mean even if they miss a beat it's like I, I remember I remember watching the Chicago documentary when they replaced the longtime Chicago drummer with a, a studio drummer because he wasn't he was having trouble keeping the beat but it's it worked I mean all those Chicago songs he played the he played the drums and it was amazing and I mean, I talked to Todd Rundgren once where he played, he said he played the song, um, you know, he played the drums on his own song. And he said by the end of the song, he was off by like that the song had slowed down a few beats. And right. it's like you'd never know it. And if you did, it just it made the song. It wasn't it doesn't need to be perfect. It right. Needs, it's human. Right. It needs right. to have feeling and soul to it. And the, the, the same goes for auto tune. You know, for the, you can digitally tune vocals. Oh, yeah. Don't even people started, do that so. now. That's hey, this there's, there's a joke going around down here um, because of auto-tune and the ability to make anything sound good. Uh, what did the engineer say to the to the country singer? That sucks. Come on in, listen. <laughs> but anyway, um, I mean, it could be a it could be a rock singer too. It doesn't have to be country. Well, it's you're it's, in Tennessee, so yeah. Well, so um, I should yeah, probably wrap uh, this. It's it's getting along, and that's okay. it's fine. I mean, I'll talk to you for a long time, but I probably should yeah. wrap it. So uh, I, I need to I need to go to my next thing anyway. But um, I appreciate it. Great talking to you, John. Yeah, no. Um, hopefully, I'll see you in March. Um, all right. Well, I look forward to seeing you, and uh, I hope uh, folks that remember Orleans or just want to take a shot and hear some great music will come on out to the show. Well, I hope so, too. And uh, I'm looking forward to be back in Rhode Island, where my grandmother lived, where my dad grew up, where I spent quite a bit of summers, you know, in, in Rhode Island on my way to and from Cuddyhunk Island or the Vineyard. Or, wow, I did not uh, know that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a sailor, and I've done plenty of, uh, I've, I've spent quite a bit of time in Sakonet or, or Warwick or Papasquash uh, Point. Cool. Um, cool. That's an even more reason for them to come up. So we yeah. have a Rhode Island connection. That's always a big thing. Yeah, my, my dad's father was dean of engineering at Brown. Wow, really? Yeah. That's where my girlfriend works. She's a, she teaches Pilates at Brown. Well, uh, that's great. 
So I got a shoulder that needs some help. Well, you, I'll show you. She'll she'll see what you can do when she sees you in March. Okay. Okay. Well, thanks, John. All right. Well, thank you, John. Have a good day, and I look forward to seeing you next month. All right. Same here. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okie dokie. Thanks to John for chatting with me today. Don't forget, Arlene's will be at the Stadium Theater in Woonsocket on March 25th. You can always check out John's music at johnhallmusic.com. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. This has been the Roots Report Podcast, presented by Motif Magazine, sponsored by The Parlor, R1 Entertainment, and the Trinity Brewhouse Beer Garden. Thank you for listening.